формат конференции дает мне возможность избежать излишнего политеса и необходимости говорить округлыми, приятными, но пустыми дипломатическими штампами. И как всякая война, война холодная оставила нам и не разорвавшиеся снаряды, образно выражаясь. Имею в виду идеологические стереотипы, двойные стандарты, иные шаблоны блокового мышления. So this week it finally happened. Vladimir Putin has launched a full-scale reinvasion of Ukraine, and the goal appears to be regime change. Suddenly, we are living in an even more frightening new world. The start of the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine capped a dizzying week. This saw Putin recognize the independence of two Moscow-backed separatist enclaves in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, making blatantly false allegations of Ukrainian atrocities against Russian speakers, and deliver an unhinged and bellicose speech by the Kremlin leader denying Ukraine's right to exist as a country. Vladimir Putin's unprovoked war of choice against Ukraine has begun, and when it's all said and done, it could turn into the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Miami, Florida, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David is the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Brian, thanks. Great to have you. So, David, uh, as I said, the full-scale reinvasion of Ukraine has begun. As we all know, we both expected this to happen. U.S. intelligence and President Biden have been predicting this would happen. It has happened. To get us started, David, I'm just going to give you an open mic. What are your top-line thoughts right now? Ukraine most immediately. And this is a, a full-scale invasion by Mr. Putin for absolutely no reason whatsoever on a completely fabricated case in which he claimed that Ukraine was a threat, it was committing genocide, uh, that it was um, uh, moving toward NATO, which really was not the case, that NATO enlargement was responsible, that the United States is a threat, the European Union is a threat. The list goes on and on and on. Um, and it also seems to contradict his claim that Russia and Ukraine are one people. He is now attacking his own people in that case, if you follow his absurd logic. And and so it is, it is a very dark uh, time right now. And it also poses, I would argue, the gravest threat to European security uh, since World War II. This, this is a massive crisis on our hands in which uh, thousands lose their lives, uh, in which millions displaced or forced out as refugees, um, and it's going to unsettle the, the economy, global economy, um, and, and it, it's a tragic time for, for the whole world, but in particular for Ukrainians. David, when you look at what we see so far, and we are recording this in a very fluid situation here on Thursday afternoon, um, how does this look like the end goal is regime change? Because Putin's speech and where the troops are moving at the moment seems to suggest to me that the end goal here is regime change. Would you agree with that? It seems to be, Brian, and, and yet to, to really 
have a regime change entrenched, it would require an occupation of the capital. And I think that will be a very difficult thing for uh, Putin and his forces to pull off, because I do think the Ukrainians are providing significant resistance. Um, Putin would really have to have a physical occupation of the capital. Uh, that, I think, will prove very difficult. It's not to say that he won't try it, but I think that will be a, a much harder thing to happen. He may be hoping that Ukrainians will panic and flee and that Zelensky will will leave. But I, I don't think that I think Zelensky will hold out to the end. Um, and and so it will be a very difficult challenge for Putin, as it, as it should be. I mean, we, we, I think we do really, Brian, as you said, it's a very fluid situation right now. But we can't salute the Ukrainians enough for their effort to defend their country, their own territory, their own land from an invading force that outnumbers them. Uh, but uh, I, I keep hearing from Ukrainians, you do too, and I think everybody has. Yeah, as I was as I was watching this unfold last night, I just was taking down notes, and one of the things I said is we owe a great debt to the Ukrainians because they are reminding us why democracy matters. They're reminding us that it's worth fighting for, and they're reminding us that in this era of fake news and alternative facts, the truth still does actually matter. Um, and I think that's something that that that, that I hope is one of the good things that comes out of this when all is said and done. Um, turning to Putin, I mean, his completely unhinged speech on Monday was followed by another completely unhinged speech yesterday. There has been a lot of talk about how through the pandemic, Putin has been increasingly isolated. He's seeing almost nobody. And he, he seems, I'm very reluctant to get inside Putin's head. It's a dark place where it's it's difficult to see anything. Um, I don't really like to do pop psychology on, on my podcast. But that said, he does seem to be losing the plot a bit, no? I, I think that's right, Brian. And, and and I think if you look at where he was as recently as Sunday when he seemed to indicate to French President Macron a willingness to meet with President Biden, and then uh, something flipped. And, uh, yeah, the speeches certainly seem unhinged. A, a guy who has lost touch with reality for sure, uh, but one who is seeing demons everywhere and thinks he can threaten the world. Um, you know, he essentially made a, a threat to the international community that if, you, if we intervene uh, on Ukraine's behalf, then we will pay a price. And uh, he, he is acting like a complete and total thug. I, I, too, don't like psychoanalyzing, but he seems to have made up this decision a while ago. Um, he had this absurd Security Council meeting yes. um, in which there were a few surprises. It, it's just bizarre behavior. That stage Security Council meeting, a couple of things about that kind of caught my attention. Number one was how uncomfortable his national security team looked um, in the meeting. Um, they looked all incredibly uncomfortable. And then you had Putin dressing down Sergei Narishkin, the head of foreign intelligence, who's been a longtime ally of, uh, ally of Putin. Did you did you pick up anything on that? I walked away thinking maybe his national security team isn't really down with this, no? And then Patrushev and Bortnikov and, and possibly Shoigu as well have really been supporting him and encouraging him in this direction. But that Security Council meeting wouldn't back up that, that case. Uh, maybe it was all show and tell. Um, but uh, it, it seemed incredibly uncomfortable. On the one hand, it seemed staged on the other, and 
at the end of the day, I think it proves that there is one person who makes all the decisions uh, there, and that is uh, that is Mr. Putin. And so regardless of, of what uh, any of his top aides may have been recommending, it seems he had made up his mind and he's plowing ahead uh, and to hell with what they might have recommended. Yeah, what this is showing beyond the kind of foreign policy implications of it is that this trend that we've been seeing since 2012, where Putin moved steadily away from this model that he had from, two, from in his first two terms as president of this um, this collective leadership model where he was this front man for this, this Politburo almost and moving to a more personalized rule. It's been steadily moving in that direction since 2012. Um, over the last 10 years. But now what we're seeing, I mean, that, that Security Council meeting once, or you, you said it perfectly, David, it had this North Korean vibe to it. But this has a serious implication in terms of U.S. and allied policy on this, because we are not dealing with a rational actor right now. That's the uh, that's the other thing. And I'm guessing I'm going to ask you to put your government hat on for, for, for a moment, because you deal differently with an adversary if you see that adversary as a rational or an irrational actor. We do not appear to be dealing with a rational actor in Putin at this point, if, if, if our kind of armchair psychology that he appears to be increasingly unhinged is accurate. How does that change the calculus and how, how the U.S. and our allies should approach this situation? His, his number one goal is staying in power, and he'll do whatever he thinks is necessary in order to achieve that goal. One of the ways to do that is to destabilize Ukraine. Ukraine does not become uh, a threatening alternative model as a vibrant democracy looking westward instead of toward Moscow. I think he felt that Ukraine was slipping away from, from Russia's sphere of influence, uh, that it was moving toward NATO uh, Putin just has a terrible understanding of his neighbors. He, he doesn't listen to anybody. He, he thinks he knows everything, he, despite his isolation from the real world over the past two plus years, probably longer. Frankly, uh, the pandemic was just a, 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 taking it to a, an additional degree of isolation. And he thinks he calls the shots without caring about what anyone else suggests. There, there was, what was it, uh, two weeks or so ago, the uh, statement put out by retired General Ivashov, uh, it didn't utterly meaningless at the end of the day. Um, and, and so Putin doesn't pay any attention to that. He listens to one person, and that person is his reflection in the mirror. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Ivashov statement to me was an indication that this is a done deal, and it was almost like a last-ditch effort to stop it. It was, it was basically an indication that he, he thought it was going to happen. But I agree with you that one of Putin's main goals is to remain in power, if not the central goal. But I think there's something more grandiose going on here. If you listen to his rhetoric, you listen to his speech, and you look at his actions. He seems to be trying to put the Soviet Union, or at least part of it, back together again in this centenary year of the founding of the USSR in 1922. He's already taken Belarus without firing a shot. Now is clearly trying to take Ukraine by force. Do you see, in addition to keeping himself in power, does Putin seem to be seem to be trying to reassemble the old empire? Because that's certainly what I see right now. I, I partly agree with you, Brian. I mean, I, I think what he wants is a sphere of influence that he can control in which he would veto countries' aspirations to join the West, uh, EU, NATO, in which they would move toward a more democratic system of government. But I don't know that he wants full control and responsibility for running these countries. I, I think one thing we can look back on when we 
uh, do a, a, a recent history of this is what happened in Kazakhstan in January, where that was a bloodless, uh, relatively for the Russian forces at least, intervention by the Russian-led CSTO force. And I think that may have given Putin further impetus thinking, hey, we can intervene pretty much anywhere and either prop up a like-minded leader or remove one we don't like and put one in place. And I think if you look at a, a country that you know far better than I and write so well on, Brian, Belarus, um, to this day, they still haven't finalized the union, union treaty, the union state. And while I agree with you that there is an essential or de facto annexation by Russia of Belarus, Lukashenko is so dependent on Putin for staying in power, uh, they still haven't quite crossed that, that uh, point yet. So I think they, they want to have a sphere of influence. They want to have veto over countries. I'm not sure they want to be running them because you look at Crimea. Crimea has been an expensive proposition for them. And now they're going to have two more and possibly beyond just possibly the DNR beyond. and LNR. I'm, I'm thinking of Putin's goals when I'm thinking about what he's trying to achieve in Ukraine, the broader goals, right? And I mean, as far as Belarus goes, I mean, it is it is a sovereign state right now in name only, right? It's basically a Russian exactly. satellite at this point. Um, exactly. What what's the the end game in Ukraine? I, this is what I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around because what is the goal? Is it to install a pro Moscow government in Ukraine? If you listen to Putin's speech, he was denying Ukraine's right to. Exist as a country. He was criticizing Lenin and Stalin for carving out a Ukrainian republic in the USSR, saying this incorrectly uh, and ahistorically, saying this was how Ukraine was created, ignoring the, of course, centuries of Ukrainian history before that, um, independent of Russia as part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and so on and so forth. But he seems to want to be saying Ukraine's part of Russia, which suggests to me he wants to annex the whole damn thing. He doesn't just want to put a puppet government in Kiev. Have you thought about about what is what is real goals? Because it's not clear how this ends. It isn't clear, and it depends on how far I think the land forces will go. It's one thing, horrible thing, of course, for uh, air attacks uh, in various parts of the country, but it's another uh, issue depending on how far the ground forces go in order to present an occupying force. And uh, I, I, we don't know how far he's planning to go. I, I think at a minimum, he would like to unseat Zelensky and put in place a pro-Russian leader. But to make that sustainable, that would require a fairly sizable uh, presence that he would have to sustain over a lengthy period of time. Mm -hmm. Ukrainians aren't going to take too well to that, of course. They're going to push back on that and resist it. Uh, I think this uh, whole issue, at least temporarily, will have a... a lead to a boost in support, but Zelensky is the country's oh, yeah. president and leader. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think he, at least he hopes to destabilize the situation enough that Zelensky might fall without perhaps having to uh, put in place a full occupying force. That's that seems to be what he's hoping for, but I think I agree with you, David. That's that's unlikely, and um, and, and and then we're talking about having to occupy Kiev, you know, a city of almost four million people that's going to be extremely hostile territory with a lot of Ukrainians who are going to be very very armed. I mean, Zelensky said yesterday, any Ukraine any Ukrainian that wants a weapon to fight the Russians will be given a weapon to fight the Russians. I mean, this this is this could turn into something like we've never seen before. It could be a, a major mistake on Putin's part, but I think most immediately it's going to be a tragedy for Ukraine yeah. because 
uh, Russian forces don't seem to have any restraint in terms of whom they bomb and how they approach things and, and whom they might kill. So uh, the, the, the toll is going to be extraordinary, I fear, for Ukraine. But it also may prove to be pretty high for Mr. Putin, too. He seems to be acting in part out of impulse, but also in part out of long range, long-term frustration as well. And if his advisors were genuinely uh, urging him to be cautious and wait, um, they may have similar concerns that this kind of move is actually not in the uh, perhaps immediate term or in longer term going to be good for Russia. Yeah, and if I mean again, we're recording in a very fluid situation right now. But the troops, as we speak, are moving south toward Kiev. They've they've taken the kind of Chernobyl zone. The last the last reports I've seen, so they do appear to be headed towards Kiev. And I agree with you, David. In the short term, this is going to be just awful for the Ukrainians. In the medium and long term, though, I think it's going to get pretty bad for the Russians as this continues. Before we shift into the second half, when I want to broaden the aperture a bit, I wanted to just talk a bit um, about the U.S. and allied response. Again, we're recording literally uh, about an hour after President Biden finished his remarks today in his press conference announcing new sanctions. It appears the second tranche of sanctions is going to include sanctions against Sberbank, um and Vetebe. Russia's two largest banks. Um, everybody, the reaction among a lot of commentators uh, has been disappointment that a swift ban was not included in this tranche of sanctions or personal sanctions against Putin were not included in this tranche of sanctions. I mean, you do want to keep some stuff in reserve, I would imagine. But um, but from, from, from my foxhole, it seems that sanctioning Sperbank and VTB is huge. I mean, Sperbank has... Most of the mortgages and pensions in Russia, this is Russia's largest bank um, by far, and sanctioning Sparebank was something we've been hesitant to do in the past, um, and we, 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 we just did it now. Um, how do you assess – I'm sure you, 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 you listened to the president's remarks today as well. Um, how, do you, how do you assess the, the allied response and the U.S. response so far? I, I think today was well short of where it should be. Uh, yes, sanctioning Sparebank uh, and, and BTB are important. That will uh, affect average Russians, um, which hopefully will make them realize what a mistake uh, Putin has made. Um, but the, you mentioned SWIFT, that that was not announced today. Um, I'm not sure what, what the West is waiting for. I, I don't necessarily agree that we should keep some things in reserve mm -hmm. uh, because what more does Putin need to do before we just unload everything we have on him? Uh, I, I think he's crossed the Rubicon. I think, frankly, he should be sanctioned and everyone yes. in the Russian government. I think everyone in the Duma, everyone in the Federation Council. Um, I don't see any point in having any foreign minister meet with Sergei Lavrov. He has no influence and he's just an awful person. Um, the EU sanctioned Shoigu um, and there have been some other individuals sanctioned. But, but why, what are we waiting for and, and not going after Putin? Um, there aren't any bank accounts with his name on them, obviously, but we do have some sense of who's keeping his money in, in safe places, and that's what we should be going after. And I, again, I, I just don't know how many more uh, Russians, Chechens, Georgians, Ukrainians, Syrians have to die before we take that step. I, mm -hmm. I really don't know what the what the holdup is. And I, I also think that um, we, we need to apply even more sanctions across the financial and energy sectors, although mm -hmm. the spare bank and BTP are important. Um, but, uh, and, and then finally, I would say 
I, this is going to be controversial. I, I think we have to prepare for the possibility that we need to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I think if, we just did that. The Russian staff, I mean, I think that was for commercial and, airliners. Well, if, I'm talking about Russian okay. military oh, planes. Okay, okay, I see. Okay. Uh, I'm talking about Russian military planes um, because the scenes that are going to come out uh, after they've hit all the various military targets, if they start hitting civilian targets, we've got to do something. We can't just sit back and watch another massacre unfold on the European continent and do nothing about it. A, a very, very risky step. I acknowledge that. But I think the risks of doing nothing are even greater because Putin will think he can get away with it in Ukraine and therefore can, can just keep on going who knows to where. So uh, we've, we've got to increase uh, energy supplies to Europe. Uh, we have to get the Gulf states on board with increasing their, their production. They seem resistant to that. And if they are, then we should frankly go after them, too, because uh, this is this is a global crisis, not just a Ukraine crisis. And everyone needs to pitch in. Yeah, I mean, I on the on the no fly zone, I mean, enforcing that would mean engaging Russia effectively militarily. It would. It would. Uh, no, no, that's I what agree. that would mean. I mean, I, I think agree. we I held understand. off on the on the energy sanctions. I was disappointed in that too, but I think we I, I understand why we held off for obvious reasons. The effect that would have on on global supplies. Um, I think on SWIFT, I think it's the Europeans that are resistant right now, um, understandably, mm-hmm. because they, they 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 have a lot more to lose. So there's there's still more diplomacy to be done there. And I think I do think the president and Secretary Blinken deserve a lot of credit on Germany. I mean, I did not expect Germany to come out so quickly. With the suspension the North, of Nord Stream, the North but they, but they was did. Very important. They did, and Agreed. that was no. I think that, that was very some, important. That was some masterful diplomacy by the administration, because the Germans did not want to do that. But um, and this this actually, David, is a perfect segue into the second half, because I want to talk about the new geopolitical reality we're in and what is what it might look like. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at this new geopolitical reality we now find ourselves in and what this new era of European security might look like. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Miami, Florida is David Kramer, who serves as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David is the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Format конференции позволяет сказать то, что я действительно думаю о проблемах международной безопасности, которыми мы вместе могли бы работать над строительством справедливого и демократического мироустройства, обеспечивая в нем безопасность и процветание не для избранных, а для всех. Благодарю вас за внимание. 
With Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine and the soft annexation of Belarus that preceded it, we are indeed entering a new era of European security. The era of globalization and interdependence, which assumed that integrating Russia into the global economy would curb its revanchist instincts is decisively over. The mask is off, and a new era of a potentially divided Europe is on the horizon. The main question remaining is where the new dividing lines will be drawn. Um, we know where one of the lines is going to be drawn, David. Uh, basically, the, the the western border of Belarus with 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 this soft annexation that's already happening. But I wanted to unpack this new era we're entering in from a couple of perspectives. First, I want to talk about Europe's security architecture and the positioning of U.S. and NATO troops and the alliance's posture. And second, I wanted to talk about something broader. Since the end of the Cold War, the assumption has been that capital is politically neutral and that commerce and globalization would sublimate conflict into harmony. That dream, of course, is now dead. Let's start with the first issue, David, the, the, the European security architecture, because we are now looking at a newly divided Europe. The dividing line is just a bit farther to the east than it, than it, than it was during the Cold War, right? Absolutely. And, and we cannot let a new iron curtain drop. Uh, along the western border of Ukraine, the western border of Belarus, uh, because if, if we do, then we are allowing Putin to determine these countries' futures, their orientation, and that is something that Russia agreed not to do in various charters and treaties that were assigned uh, from the UN to the Helsinki Accords, uh, Paris Charter, the advised Paris European Security Treaty, um, a whole number of things that state flatly that these countries have a right to determine their own future. The Budapest Memorandum uh, that Russia, Ukraine, UK, and US signed in exchange for giving up its nuclear weapons, Ukraine was told their sovereignty and territorial integrity would be guaranteed. Uh, Russia-Ukraine Friendship Treaty, so many. And, and so Russia, mm -hmm. uh, Putin has just torn all of these things up. And, and at the end of the day, the, these treaties are important, but they get at the issue of freedom. They get at the issue of a country's right to choose its own future, its own government, its own orientation, whether it wants to join uh, NATO and the EU or not. It's up to those countries. And if we allow Mr. Putin to say, I'm sorry, I exercise a, a, veto, a veto over these countries, then I think we are going to wake up to a whole new Europe that is not going to be a very pretty one at all. Well, I mean, David, I would argue this morning we woke up <laughs> to a whole new year, basically. Indeed, I mean, for sure. Um, this, this last night or in the early hours of, of this morning when I was up losing sleep watching this all unfold at four in the morning. Um, but I mean, I think as far as Belarus is concerned for the minute, the, 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 the poes do shoal, as the Russians would say, the train has left the station. Mm -hmm. um, Belarus is basically annexed. And for all intents and purposes, it is an extension of Russia's Western military district now, whether or not it's like formally becomes part of some new Soviet Union for, for, for practical purposes, it is. What is being fought over now is where that line is going to be drawn in Ukraine. As you said, I think we have to do everything possible to make sure it is not Ukraine's Western border, which is the new line. I would prefer it to be Ukraine's Eastern border. Um, it might end up being the Dnieper River. We, we, we really don't know. This is, this is, again, very fluid. But wherever those lines end up being drawn, what's going on on the NATO side of the line from here on in is going to be different. Right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we've we've moved some troops into the Baltics and some troops into Poland and some troops into Romania, the frontline states that are bordering this. Um, and I'm wondering if, if Slovakia is going to be added to that list, which which borders Ukraine to the west 
as well. But, is, I mean, are, are we going to have a heavily fortified uh, NATO front line now, as opposed to these tripwires that we've had in place until now? I, I think we'll have to, because we don't know where Putin's going to stop. Uh, if, if you go back to 2014 with the uh, bloodless uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, I would argue, to borrow the Stalinist phrase, he got dizzy with success and thought he could uh, try his luck in the Donbass region. And if somehow he gets to Kiev in, in a fairly easy fashion, I don't think he will, but if, if that should happen, I, I worry if he gets dizzy with success again. And and thinks that, well, you know, look at what I've done against very little resistance. Uh, maybe I'll prove to NATO that it, it is a feckless organization and I'll, I'll test it in the Baltics or somewhere. So I, I think without question, we have to beef up uh, the military NATO military presence, not just U.S., but certainly U.S. military presence in the region among uh, NATO member states bordering Russia and Ukraine um, and do it very, very quickly because we cannot leave. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia exposed. Um, they have been staunch allies and are so deserving our, of our support. And lastly, of course, President Biden himself referred to Article 5 security guarantees as mm -hmm. sacrosanct. And if they are, then we actually have to back it up. And a bunch of Eastern European NATO states have called for Article 4 consultations. Um, that, that, that this is this is going on in real time as as we're recording. It'll probably be uh, it'll probably be more developed by the time this this podcast drops on Friday. But there's there there's a call for Article 4 uh, consultations. I, I just want to briefly briefly put your government hat on, David. I mean, you you worked on these areas when when you were uh, both uh, Assistant Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary. What's going on right now? What's being what, you know what is being talked about? argued about at this point between the U.S. and the Allies? As you said earlier, Brian, I think kudos to the administration for all the coordination it's done with Allies in the lead up to this. Intelligence sharing, uh, talk about the various sanctions packages that they would unveil. I, I do thank credit to the administration for uh, convincing Chancellor Schultz to uh, stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, mm -hmm. um, but they, they are scrambling. I mean, as any government would be at this point, struggling to get uh, correct information on what's happening and trying to figure out what the best response should be. I, I do think, as we've said already, that um, the initial sanctions announced earlier in the week from the U.S. were insufficient. I think today's sanctions were better, but still fall short of where we should be. I, I really don't understand what we're holding back, why we're holding back. Um, and, and so I think that the time is now to do this. The point, the point right now, the, the objective right now is to stop the attack, to stop mm -hmm. the violence being committed by Russian forces on Ukrainians. And to do that, I think we have to drop every sanction on them as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, there's this debate going on right now about this, whether we should like, do these sanctions in an escalatory fashion, like, you know, several tranches of them, or if it should be one full, you know, shock and awe uh, where we drop everything. And honestly, I don't know enough about sanctions and what which of those I don't I, I don't really fall on one side or the other of this because I really don't know enough about the issue. You seem to be in the shock and awe category, correct? Absolutely. Without doubt, because some of them will take time to actually implement. Um, and the, I think we're past the point of escalation because I'm not sure what more do we need to see that would trigger further sanctions that we're holding back. Um, right. I, I, this is an invasion and it's been correctly called an invasion, um, starting from the recognition of the DNR and LNR. 
And so I think we are at the point now where I, I really don't know what, what is it that would trigger more sanctions. Um, I, I think now is the time to unload and it will take some time for the, some of them to kick in, but um, be, better to unload them now and possibly try to prevent further action. We, we've got to show strength and unity here. Um, and, and while we may claim that we're all united, it's Putin who has to perceive that we are united and strong. And I fear right now that he does not believe that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what are we waiting for, I think what we're waiting for on SWIFT is that we got to get the Europeans on board and they're not quite there yet. Yeah. And that's going to take some yeah. more diplomacy. But if if past his prologue, I got a lot of confidence in, in Secretary Blinken and the president to get them on side on this. The other thing is on the personal sanctions against Putin, because I see three things on the table right now that that we could still do. That's SWIFT. That's personal sanctions against Putin, individual sanctions against Putin. And then that's the energy sector. Now, on the yeah. first two, SWIFT and Putin, I think what is happening now is the administration's trying to get the Europeans on side. That's my that's my best guess at the moment. On the energy, I think there is genuine fears on both sides of the Atlantic about what that would do to global energy markets and the pain that's going to cause to American and European consumers. Um, I think that's what's really holding us back there. So I think, I mean, I, I do understand. I'm, a, I'm with you. I wish I would have liked to have seen SWIFT today and individual sanctions against Putin and, and, and energy, you know, the sanctions on the Russian energy sector. Easy for me to say I don't drive, so I don't have to really worry about gas prices. But I understand why the administration is um, is where it is. In the few minutes we have left, David, I know we both got a hard stop today. I did want to talk about this broader thing, this the issue of since the end of the Cold War, this assumption that capital is politically neutral and that commerce and globalization would sublimate conflict into harmony. That dream is dead. Is this the end of the era of optimistic globalization? And are we in, in what are the implications of that in, in a broader sense? Because we've been living in this world for a generation now. We have been operating on the assumption that if we bring countries like Russia and China into international organizations such as the World Trade Organization, the G7 and so on, China, of course, was never in the G7, um, that they would play by the rules, that they, it's better to have them inside the tent than outside. And I think we have learned that that is not the case. What they try to do is to bend the rules and norms of these entities to their desires instead of abiding by these commitments. That's why when people talk about we missed an opportunity to bring Russia into NATO, well, when uh, Yeltsin a little bit and Putin also talked about uh, joining NATO, they wanted to do it uh, according to their rules, that, that mm -hmm. NATO had to bend to accommodate them. And we rightly did not pursue that. Um, and, and so we, if, if we want these institutions to remain true and represent the standards we uphold, um, we can't bend, we can't, we have to uh, hold them to high standards that members are supposed to live up to. Um, so yes, I, I think I think the sort of whole globalization drive in this regard is in danger. Um, but uh, the, the main thing I think is that the democratic world needs to get more confidence, needs to grow a stiffer spine, yes. and needs to push back on these authoritarian threats, because if we don't, um, we're going to discover and wake up one day that the globe is looking a little more like them than like us. Yeah, no, and I fear we're pretty too, pretty close to that place, and it's not like we we haven't been warned. That was another thing I was thinking about last night as I was looking at this the escalatory nature of certain Russian actions going back for the last 14 years, 15 years, right? 2007, you had the cyber attack against Estonia. 
Um, and then a year later, you had a kinetic invasion of Georgia, albeit a limited one, exactly. um, that stopped short of the capital. And you, um, in the recognition of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, 2014, you had a much less limited invasion of, uh, of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. And now we have what we're seeing before us. Each of these steps has been escalatory. We can't say that we haven't uh, that we haven't been been warned. Um, any last thoughts before we wrap it up, David? I'm looking at the clock and seeing we need to wrap it up. Uh, Brian, thanks for having me. As you said, this is a very, very fluid situation. I know uh, so many of us here in the United States are hoping and praying for Ukraine. So Slava Ukraine and let's let's. Uh, end this as soon as possible. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. And I want to just—I uh, know we got Ukrainian listeners, listeners out there. Our thoughts are with you. And on that note, we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Powerical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Miami, Florida, has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David's a senior fellow and lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. David, thank you as always for an enlightening discussion. Brian, I appreciate it as always. Thanks to you and your great team. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical.